Hi, and welcome to The ACO Show, a podcast about healthcare, health policy, and the people trying to make American healthcare better. I'm Brian Chaglinski. And I'm Josh Israel, and it's a good thing we have good editors, or you'd all have to listen to Brian botch the intro about, about <laughs> five. Five takes, one for each season. We are glad today to be joined by Blake Madden, who is the editor, writer, all things for the Hospitology Newsletter, which is a very informative and enjoyable to read newsletter about healthcare, healthcare financing, healthcare policy, and he had a lot of good things to say about some some changes as he sees them in the healthcare system. Yeah, it was a really great conversation as a like communications and PR nerd. I love talking to Blake and previous listeners and, and folks who have listened to the show before can go back and check out the episode we did with the health tech nerds guys as well. There's just this great democratization of the healthcare analyst space that's happening with a lot of great sites and, and writers who are, are taking a look at the field in new ways and, and opening up the hood a little bit to a lot of readers. So Blake is a really informative, really smart guy. I'm really glad we got to talk to him. So thank you all for joining us and we hope you enjoy the conversation. Now we're proud to be joined by Blake Men from Hospitology. Blake, thanks so much for taking the time to join us today. Yeah, thanks for having me on. I'm excited for this conversation. Yeah. Well, first of all, let's start from the very beginning. What is hospitology? Can you tell us a little bit about the community that you've built there? No, absolutely. What isn't hospitology? No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> yeah, so funny story. I used to do consulting, healthcare consulting, M&A, and kind of valuation advisory type work. And just to get ahead of my fellow comrade analyst, I started writing a newsletter. And at the time, it was called The Healthy Muse. And I think it was back in like late 2018. Just wrote it once a week and kind of just did news aggregation and with some thoughts. And that kind of snowballed into maybe around 1500 or so subscribers, just kind of organic word of mouth, which is cool, but never strategically tried to offer it or do anything with it in any way. But you kind of call it late 2022, work week had just launched and they reached out to me and said, Hey, I'm there. We're, we're looking for some more creators and healthcare is a vertical we're interested in. We saw your newsletter, would love to talk about acquiring and employing you and those sorts of things. And so now we rebranded the Healthy Muse, RIP, to Hospitology. And it's spelled hospital, O-G-Y. So there's no O in there. A lot, a lot of people try to put the O in there and there's no O. <laughs> but but more or less, I, I write about the business <laughs> of healthcare and partnerships, M&A, strategy, and try to distill it down from like my past consulting life. And I write it twice a week and it's been, been writing it since April of 22. And now I'm up to around, gosh, like it's crazy, like 20,000 subscribers or so. So it's been, it's been a fun journey and it's unlocked a lot of doors and a lot of really interesting conversations with folks like y'all. Yeah, it's a, it's a good newsletter. I really enjoy it. It's one of the, one of those that I read regularly. You've got a really nice way of being informative, but also keeping it, keeping it breezy. Uh, one of the articles I enjoyed not too long ago was uh, top trends in, in healthcare. So let's dive in. What are you seeing going on right now in the healthcare market? No, absolutely. Great, great question. As we all know, healthcare is constantly changing. And I think that we're going to honestly touch on a lot of topics that I'll, I'll bring up here today. The first of which I think is just so pressing right now is the, the vertical integration game. I've written about that a few times this year. And how you got the Optums of the world, the CVSs of the world, Humana, 
even Kaiser, other folks are buying up services assets or, or something that's below or above them a level to go along with that. A lot of Medicare Advantage activity is kind of spurring that movement. Beyond that, you got obviously the, the flavor of the month is generative AI and lots of companies getting funding. You got like Hippocratic AI getting $65 million for uh, nothing burger right now, but with a lot of promise, right? So I'm interested to see how things like that pan out. And then besides that, lots of uncertainty in the macro environment with you know, interest rates and lots of high profile, interesting failures and in business case studies to learn from as far as the Babylons and the envisions and those folks and, and kind of lessons learned for investors. So lots of interesting stuff. Yeah, I think one of the things that really caught my attention recently, obviously, because it was also a, a journey that we were going on as a company, was the growth of the public benefit corporation structure as this idea that was beginning to take off a little bit in healthcare and particularly healthcare companies that you profiled in one of your posts, Allidaid and Mark Cumin's Cost Plus Drugs. And I'm just wondering, like, now that a little bit of time has passed and you've had a little time to kind of see some of those models and, and how they've taken off, what do, you, what do you see about that? Is that a trend that you're starting to see, or is that just a, a bit of a an anomaly in the market, or does it speak to something broader about some of the undercurrents we're seeing in the system? It, it, it's a good question, and kind of to to my last point about business failings, a lot of reasons why some of those business might might have failed is for because of failure in governance, right, and lack of checks and balances at the the highest level. And like for that reason, like you mentioned, I did, I talked about and wrote about public benefit corporations and how it's this really nice medium between the, the maximizing all profits, but also having a North Star patient centric or some sort of other objective in mind. And I think it, it's nice for healthcare. It's a nice blend of capitalism, which is like the worst, best structure of in society, right? Economic structure in society, but then also aspects of like considering something else and not just the financial incentives in healthcare today. You mentioned AI, and you've written that you think that the attention being paid to AI in healthcare is warranted. Why is that? Yeah. So I think when you think about artificial intelligence in general and, and generative AI, you think about chat GPT. And then when you think about healthcare, I think maybe it's Humana or, or one of the big payers releases a report every year that's on kind of uh, administrative bloat in healthcare, and they always come up with some statistic that there's 30% complexity, waste, those sorts of things. So, so my my current thinking is that there's a lot of potential for AI to kind of standardize a lot of processes, help with things like prior auth or documentation. I've written about documentation before with some colleagues in the space, and I think it has a lot of potential to unlock physicians. And, and reduce burnout for both from a documentation standpoint, but also in data and analytics and, and getting kind of more predict, better predictive insights, those sorts of things. I'm, I'm not in the nuts of, in bolts of those things, but from what I understand, there's a lot of promise there. And, and that being said, we are, we're in peak hype mode right now, but there is going to be some sort of trough of disillusionment at some point. So we'll have to kind of weather that storm and probably see some failure and consolidation along the way as some of these companies that are funded just run out of steam or you know, have no moat or no product or those sorts of things. So it's an interesting time because there's a lot of promise, but also a lot of fluff. Just in full disclosure, Brian does a lot of really excellent copywriting and I have seen him trying to throw his shoes into our AI mainframe server, just, just <laughs> really trying to jam his Crocs. 
really, really deep in fighting the machines, fighting the machines. Well, yeah, I mean, I think marketing and healthcare marketers, probably they're a little more hesitant to use it just because of the compliance and security element. But in marketing specifically, there's a lot of use cases for it. And I've definitely used it to summarize things or ask it for a history on a business. Like when I wrote about Envision, I was like, what's the history of Envision? And it gave it to me. It spat it out. And obviously, you have to fact check that sort of thing. Hallucinations are obviously a big problem, but it's really useful for speeding you up by 20%. Yeah. Yeah. Another, I think another growing trend, if we're looking at different charts in healthcare, that's just on the upswing, along with AI is another uh, acronym, MA. I think we're seeing a ton of growth in MA coverage and and especially trying to think about what that means for the future of uh, the Medicare program for the future experience that beneficiaries are going to uh, have. What are, you, what are you seeing through the MA market and what are some of the uh, predictions about what might happen uh, next? Yeah, we we love our healthcare acronyms, don't we? <laughs> yeah, so lots of really interesting activity happening in Medicare Advantage across the board. Obviously, you have the secular growth trends in Medicare Advantage with just the baby boomer population and United Health and Humana, CVS are all going all in on capturing as much as many members as they can. And when you compare that to traditional Medicare, they're structurally advantaged to do so because they have these supplemental benefits or you have Joe Namath on the screen. And side note, I don't know why Joe Namath has become like the person that when you think about Medicare Advantage marketing, he's always the guy (laughs) that seems to be called out which maybe is a little unfortunate, probably not his fault. But just things like that, there's a lot of incentives pushing folks toward Medicare Advantage plans over traditional Medicare. And, and with that comes some trade-offs that not everyone understands, the narrow networks and prior authorization on the provider side uh, and those sorts of things. So it's a, it's a really interesting time because um, Medicare Advantage is 51% now of all of Medicare. And I tweeted that out that United and Humana have around 50% of Medicare Advantage members membership. And so somebody did the math and said that United Healthcare is receives 19% of all Medicare dollars. And I don't know if that's true, but it's probably right directionally. So there's a lot of consequences that come with that, right? And it kind of plays into the vertical in- integration trend as well. United Health Group and Optum purchasing these physicians, purchasing care delivery assets behavioral health, home health in particular, to keep these patients out of higher cost care settings, whether honestly, kind of whether they like it or not, right? Because it's potentially the lowest cost setting or I'm viewing it from a more kind of skeptical lens as I, I think most do. But Medicare Advantage and the penetration of Medicare Advantage into local healthcare markets are something that physicians and providers and hospital systems are, are going to have to to deal, contend with and, and think about as they probably shift referral patterns through kind of that that flywheel. Yeah. I mean, you had mentioned Medicare Advantage and the growth of it at the, the start of it. And you also mentioned vertical integration and they're they're very related, right? That we see growth of a of a player like like United, like UHG. My concern around that is the way that in our system that once you have a lot of dollars flowing your way, you can employ lobbyists and marketing, direct-to-consumer campaigns, and it can be very hard to to separate you from those dollars flowing your way in our system. And that relates to the vertical integration, right? Because they're not just 
growing in Medicare Advantage. They're they're growing in markets and buying up practices. I mean, what do you think about the the effect of that on on costs? And the, really, there's the hope for for bringing down healthcare costs for modernizing our system for the better. No, absolutely. That's a like fantastic question. A great segue to your first point. There is a lot of regulatory capture that United Health Group is successful in uh, doing, and they are very shrewd at where they pick their battles in you know, antitrust and uh, acquiring physician practices or national home health players or those sorts of things. And they always seem to skirt by and just get what they want. So there's a lot of consequences there, obviously. Secondly, the jury is out on vertical integration, obviously. I've, I've seen a lot of good literature on the topic and what are the effects on on patient care? What are the effects on uh, clinicians in local market, if there's suppressed wages or um, lack of competition or, or those sorts of things, uh, narrow networks, like I mentioned. And so, so right now, I'm personally of the opinion that vertical integration could work in theory to reduce costs and coordinate care and integrate patient care across primary care and specialty care and behavioral health. Like all of, they have all those assets to do that. But today, I don't think that that exists. And I think that it exists more as a mechanism to financially engineer results and preserve kind of PBM market share and lock in medical loss ratios and those sorts of things. So I will say, I think the potential is there in practice in a for-profit system. It's a little tricky getting there. And so maybe that's where kind of policy steps in without knowing the nuts and bolts of that either. I think another place where we've seen policy kind of take a, a leading role in trying to carve out a space for market entrants to run with has been value-based care. And obviously, we have an interest in Allidate and in the future of value-based care, and particularly our take in really promoting independence for primary care practices and bringing resources back to community primary care through those models. But what is your take looking at broadly at the entire landscape of value-based care? I, I think we're... we're more than a decade into the movement now, are we seeing some particular standouts? Are we seeing um, some lessons that can be broadly applied or maybe missteps uh, that have been taken along the way? And I think a follow-up question kind of tied to your vertical integration point is how do large health systems and hospitals play a role in this movement to value? Do you see them playing a constructive role uh, in a way that's that's stood out? Yeah, great questions. To your first point on, on value-based care in general, like in theory, I... I've seen kind of two camps and two schools of thought, and I'll tell you which one I kind of sit in. The first one is, you know, you see the timeline of all the value-based care programs, and the only one that has generated savings is the Maryland all-payer model. And then I think Medicare shared savings has as well, or has been successful. And so the skeptics look at that and they say, oh, like value-based care has done nothing. All it's done has introduced documentation and, and kind of burden to the system through quality metrics, and there's no standardization of those quality metrics across payers and all those sorts of things. And so that's kind of more of the skeptics lens is like, hey, let's just go back to fee for service or do direct contracting or whatever they system they want to do. I'm firmly in the camp that we are still continuing to build the chassis for value-based care. And there's a lot of things that are still built on top of a fee for service world, right? And so it's kind of like jerry-rigged together, like whether it's cost benchmarking or, or whatever. I firmly believe value-based care, while one of the aims is to reduce cost, it's more so about aligning incentives and behavior change. 
especially from like the like healthcare delivery perspective, the health behavioral change, meaning a more team oriented approach to care, analytics introduced into patient care, more consumerism and patient engagement on, on that front. And so I think that those tools are being built, especially post COVID. Lots of folks are digitizing healthcare, love that buzzword, but kind of the hybrid, hybrid care delivery and lots of interesting, innovative models coming online in a lot of different complex populations across chronic disease management and behavioral health and substance use disorder. So I think that all of these things are kind of scattered and across like lots of different companies and investors and those sorts of things, but we'll kind of slowly see best practices continue to, to morph and, and move forward. And it kind of, it has to move forward because otherwise there's an impending cost crisis if we're still fully on these fee-for-service chassis. And like we talked about, the, the Medicare Advantage population continues to grow. And what happens in 50 years when the population stops growing and it stagnates, right? I have to kind of think about that from a long-term perspective. Like what happens when I'm a grandfather, when my kid isn't going to get Medicare or, or whatever the situation is? Am I going to get Medicare, right? Because of these cost trends and those sorts of things. So I feel like I'm bringing up a lot of existential points on this podcast, but it's lots of interesting th things to consider. Actually, I was pretty hopeful that you're worried about your, your grandkids needing Medicare rather than needing scuba gear. So I, I think that's actually a, a hopeful take on, on the planet in 50 years. I hope that my kid or grandkid is a very engaged healthcare participant. <laughs> you mentioned that capitalism being sort of the best and the worst. And I, I, you know, there's a lot to that. I think that's, that's a sort of a wise way of seeing it. Within our system, I just think value-based care is still the best solution where we're not trying to convince anybody necessarily to do the right thing, do the good thing. We're just going to try to line things up financially so that the, the right thing, the good thing is what is what pays people's salary. And then that's just such a, a fantastic perpetual motion machine to me. And and if it if that doesn't work, I, I don't know what could could fix our system. Yeah, it's like what exactly. I totally agree. What's the what's the alternative to it? I see folks on on Twitter or LinkedIn kind of push this idea of direct contracting, but then that kind of alienates folks who are not financially low off or don't have traditional employer arrangements, you know, those sorts of things. So there's problems wherever you just kind of have to, to pick your poison. And I think value-based care is the most palatable option from that perspective. We don't call it poison, but your, your point is taken. <laughs> maybe, maybe the wrong term there. So Bleak, I love reading your newsletter, obviously, and, and the conversations that you keep alive on Twitter. And I see this as coming from like a healthcare comms perspective. I see this really exciting growth of a, a community of really kind of grassroots analysts and thinkers who are sharing their findings and their uh, insights a lot more publicly than we've gotten in the past. So it's not like the traditional media or industry media uh, outlets, and it's not closed off uh, investor analysts or other analyst reports that you can only read with a specific subscription. There's like this bubbling community of ideas coming out of you, hospitality, obviously. Your colleague, Jared Dushevsky, who he's read some of his work. We had not to tout any of your competitors as well, but the health tech nerds guys came on a little while ago and talked a little bit about their community as well. And I, I see this like really exciting place of idea generation and analysis that's really happening organically and open in public in a way that that seems relatively unique. So I just, I wanted to see if like you had any thoughts about kind of being in the middle of that growth, if you see it that way, where you think 
this trend might be headed of, of sharing a lot more of these insights transparently about the healthcare uh, industry. No, absolutely. I think it's a fantastic trend. And first off, I'm really insulted you had the HTN guys on before me. <laughs> no, I'm just teased. I'm at Kevin and Ryan. They're awesome. They were they were the teaser before <laughs> your before your main appearance. I'm a I'm a member of Health Tech Nerd, so big fan. <laughs> but yeah, I will say I think it's like fantastic that there's folks that are in day to day operations or at their current role within healthcare and that they want to share their learnings or learn more about what's going on in healthcare. That's exactly how I got started. And it, it was just so eye-opening for me. And I'll tell anybody who wants to get into the content game, it opens so many doors for you if you just keep writing and you're consistent and you write about something that's interesting, but also provides value for other folks. And there's, there's sky's the limit, truly. Um, and I think writing is a often forgotten skill that a lot of, it's very powerful, right? The power of persuasion and ability to have a platform and those sorts of things. And it's a little scary, honestly, but it, I think it's net amazing for healthcare that we have all these folks in this kind of thriving, vibrant community. And I'd hope that more people continue to join and that you continue to write. And please, if you've written something, send it my way. Would be would love to get eyes on it and read it and share it if I think it's good for the audience and all that good stuff. I mean, I, I think that a rising tide lifts all boats and but you, you mentioned competition. I don't consider anyone really competition. I mean, I know we're all trying to get eyeballs or ears, but I'm, I, based on how big the healthcare system is, I think that there's plenty of room for everyone. <laughs> like, in my opinion, I think healthcare creators are pretty scarce, a dime a dozen. So please write if you're considering. Yeah, I like that philosophy. Yeah. 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 Often at LA, we talk about the idea of, fellow travelers, right? If, if anyone's headed in the direction towards a value-based care future, we support that and we encourage them. I will say, I think from like a company standpoint, I know you guys have talked about this on the podcast before about how far as that would it really advocated for this podcast. I honestly found in my old firm that I was hamstrung a little bit about what I could say or what I could produce. And so it kind of turned me off a little bit. And so it's, it's cool. I think Alliday does a lot of really cool good things as far as content. And when they had the fun, when you guys had the fundraising announcement, it was very thoughtful with the threads on Twitter. And the, was it Lightspeed Ventures? They, they had their they, appearance on the podcast and explained their rationale and also had a blog post and those sorts of things. So I don't know if everyone notices stuff like that, but I, I do. I'm kind of a freak like that. But it's it's fun to look at various companies' content strategies. And I think you guys are doing a good job. So Blake, we appreciate you joining our podcast. We would love to direct people to your newsletter. How do people sign up for Hospitology? Yeah, so you could probably just Google Hospitology. So again, it's hospital, O-G-Y, all one word. Or you could go to workweek.com and I'm I'm on there somewhere. <laughs> also, please do feel free to connect with me on Twitter or LinkedIn. I'm around and love to you know, learn from folks and have interesting conversations like this one. So Really appreciate you guys having me on and, you know, big fan of Validate, as you guys probably know. And there we go. Well, Blake Madden, thanks so much for joining us, for being part of the, the larger conversation and our conversation here. Great conversation. Thanks for having me. The ACO Show now has a mailbag. Submit your questions, compliments, or episode ideas to ACO Show at Alladate.com. This show 
was produced by Leanne Horst, Alana Coogan, Rebecca Raymond, Stuart Taylor, and of course, our wonderful hosts. Check out more of our show wherever you get your podcast. Thanks for listening. 